I want to start with a couple of stories this morning. So first one, um, I'd just like you to know how wicked my heart is. This is it. It's confessions of a pastor. Get off my chest. Um, I remember a moment, Monica and I were living in Glasgow. Um, we had become really enamored by a friend. Okay, oh, man, there's always so much to this story. Um, we, we got, uh, for our wedding, you know, you get the china and you got all these little cups and all the little cups match. And we'd have 20 people over for, for coffee and all the cups are sitting around and you go to grab your cup and you don't know what one's yours. And it's like, is that mine? Is that mine? Is that your cup? Is that, that's got lipstick. That's definitely mine. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, but we'd been at a friend's house and a friend had this collection of Starbucks mugs from all over Southeast Asia. They didn't match. They were all sorts of different mugs. And we're like, that's a great idea because whenever you go, uh, you see the mug, you know exactly which one is yours. And someone and I are like, we should do that. Like, it's a really simple thing. Anytime we travel somewhere, it's a simple, like, we're always like, what should we bring back as a memento? Let's just bring back a mug. And so over time, we collected, we've got like 40 or 50 Starbucks mugs from all over the country. If you've been in our house, you've probably drank in one. Um, And it's just one of those ways people come in, they know what their mug is, and and that was the goal. So we have this moment, we're in Glasgow, we've got this growing collection of mugs, and we are cooking at breakfast on a Friday morning for a whole ton of people and we had some family in town who wanted to help. Now our kitchen was kind of small, not very conducive to having multiple people help in this moment. So I'd ask this particular person, hey, the best thing you can do is go sit through in the, the other room, just chat with people. Oh no, 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 I want to help. I'm like, honestly, the best help that you can be right now is just go through to the other room. Uh, like I need space here, like there's not enough room, so I just go through to the other room. So as I'm starting to do stuff, this person decides, well, I'm going to do the dishes. And so squeezes in behind me and starts doing the dishes. And inside I'm like, just go to the other room, please. And then, of course, what do I hear? And I turn around and my New York Starbucks mug was lying in pieces in the sink. My internal reaction, I was seething. On the outside, I was like, oh, it's not a big deal. And inside, I was seething over the loss of a mug. Now, just to give a little bit of context, they've stopped making these mugs. So these are important collectibles that you can't replace unless I want to spend 60 bucks for a mug. Um, But inside, something was wrong in me that my reaction toward this person was so intense because I lost a mug. What's going on in me? Let's go to the contrast, completely other side. I'm in India, as I, I often would do. I go and I spend time at the orphanage. I know all the kids. They know who I am. I love playing with them. Um, And slowly over time, you know, it's my mission. Learn all their names, know who they are. And so uh, there's this one kid, his name was Ajay, and we're at the orphanage. And this was, I'd probably been two or three times, and he'd hit the age where he was aging out. And so he's letting me know, like, it's the end of my trip. I'm getting ready to go home. And he's like, like, I won't be here next time you're here. And I was like, oh, that makes me really sad. Like, you're one of my favorite people to play with. And he's like, but I'll be right back. And he goes away into his room and he comes back out with this. Uh, And he's like, I want you to take this so that you'll remember me. This is his only possession. In a previous trip, some missionaries had, or some, a mission team had come out. They brought a bunch of these beanie babies, gave, gave them to all the kids. So this is the only thing he owns. And he's like, I want you to remember me. So would you take this thing with you to remember me? It was dirty. It was stinking. <laughs> um, but I looked at it and I was like, I can't take your teddy. And he's like, 
you don't like me? I was like, let's do this. Let me take a picture of you with the teddy and I'll put it on my wall when I get home. But you keep your giraffe um, because I want you to have it. Two completely different internal responses to possessions. One of them that was so attached to the item in question that I was willing to kill someone in my mind because they damaged it. And another who was so generous in his posture and so detached from his possessions uh, that he was willing to give the only thing that he had as a way of blessing someone. We're in this series where we're looking at vices. I'm going to put the definition up again so that we can remember. A vice is a habit or character trait that inclines you towards a certain type of action. So these are uh, the core ruts that we get in spiritually that the enemy works in our life to draw us away from Jesus. And this morning, if you haven't guessed it, we're going to talk about the vice that's traditionally called avarice. The way we refer to it today is greed. And so here's the definition It's an excessive or disordered attachment to money and or possessions. A disordered attachment to money and or possessions. If there is any question as to whether or not this vice is an issue in our culture, I just want you to think of one thing. Storage units. You want to see some utterly horrendous statistics. Let's put this up on the screen. The annual revenue in the U.S., just the U.S., this is not worldwide, the amount of money spent annually on storing our stuff in storage units is approximately $29 billion. I chose one of the estimates on the lower end. Some of them were going up as high as $40 billion. And the U.S. spends more on storage units than the rest of the world combined. Storage space. So if you just look at all the storage units that exist in the U.S., 2 billion square feet is dedicated in our country to storing the stuff that we are not using. And there are 14.6 million households who have a storage unit that they have stuff inside of it an obsessive attachment to the things that we're not even using, right? You get that? This is a storage unit. This is the thing that you pay 100 bucks a month to have it in this facility over there, and maybe once a year you go get something out of it. So we're spending $29 billion on storing the things that we don't use. Rebecca de Young, who wrote the book Glitter and Vices, this is what she writes about avarice and greed, just to bring greed to home for all of us, because this looks different in different contexts. This is what she says. The greedy person's overattachment to things wears many faces, an overflowing shopping cart or a single cherished purchase, a stock portfolio that's aggressive or conservative, a wallet full of credit cards or a safety deposit box with a few carefully guarded treasures, a garage full of expensive cars, or a closet full of great deals. Greed takes many forms, and when we think of it, we typically think of greed as the person that hoards and collects and amasses a lot. But greed can also take the form of scarcity and being a miser and being really diligent about how we save uh, so that we're secure for the future. 
Popular culture, uh, we've been doing this every week, popular culture warns us against the dangers of these vices. Uh, One of the common images that's used in uh, cartoons and in movies and in books of the, the person of avarice is the dragon. Right? The dragon that sits on its hoard of wealth. This is an artist's rendition of Smog from Lord of the Rings. Um, seated on his hill of treasures. We can think about C.S. Lewis. Uh, the story of Eustace who is so enamored by possessions that he ends up turning into a dragon. Representing on the outside who he is on the inside. If we want to bring it a little bit more current. We could think about this guy. Tamatoa from Moana. Uh, with all of his treasures on the back of his shell, thinking he looks awesome because of the wealth that he carries. Avarice on one side of the spectrum is about hoarding. So think about your closet. How much stuff do you have in your closet that you actually wear? And how much is just kept because of an attachment to something that doesn't matter? And I tell you, unless you're actively meeting with a personal trainer, you're not going to fit into that thing from 20 years ago. As much as I tell myself I will, it needs to go. You know you're guilty of avarice if you're in your house and you look at the surfaces and every surface is covered in stuff. You know if you look in your garage and you have boxes that are filled with stuff that have moved from house to house to house and you still have them but you've still not opened them. And you may be guilty of avarice if you have a collection of Starbucks mugs, of books, of red shoes, <laughs> um, or avarice. You go to the other extreme with avarice. Popular culture shows us these people who look the other way. The most famous of these, perhaps, Ebenezer Scrooge. The miser, the wealthy guy who, who is a penny pincher in every way. Uh, amassing his fortune, saving, but it's so caught up in his need to protect his wealth that he overlooks the plight of the people around him who are in need. We are so caught up in avarice. Of course, the Bible has a lot to say about this topic, right? Jesus In the church, we make a big deal about sex and sexuality, right? We make a lot of judgments about what people do in the sexual arena out there in the world. Jesus has more to say about money and finances than he has to say about sex. But as the church in the West, we are much more vocal about what those people out, out there are doing with their bodies and much more happy approving of our own avarice. Both of them. Deadly sins and capital vices that rob us of the fullness of life that Jesus has for us. Here's one of the things that Jesus says. This is the Sermon on the Mount, that core teaching of his about the ethics of the kingdom of God. He says this in Matthew 6. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money and possessions are gods in our culture. We use the language idolatry. We don't talk about things being gods out there. But in reality, money and possessions are gods of our culture. 
And what happens with gods historically? We build temples in their honor. We engage in rituals to satisfy them. And a lot of the time, money goes into the investment of the upkeep of the temple of the God that we worship. In our society, we get caught up in accumulation. I want to amass as much as I can because if I have enough, it's going to give me the status and the value that I want. We worship our objects. People line up overnight to get the newest iPhone. They just want an item and they'll spend a night sleeping outdoors to get it. On the other extreme, if we're caught up in penny pinching, what are we saying? I am the one responsible for my own safety and security. So I'm going to pinch and I'm going to save and I'm going to amass money in the background so that I am secure in the future. Both options reject God as the one in control and set ourselves and our pleasures up uh, as, as the one to be worshipped. If money is our God and historically gods are worshipped, you do realize our culture is filled with temples to the goddess Avarice. Here's a picture of one of them. Just think about it for a minute. A temple dedicated to the worship of possessions. People engage in rituals. Every Friday at 10 a.m. I go to the mall. Kids that we get done with school and we go hang out at the mall. We browse the stores. Sadly, it's moved from a, a physical temple to a digital temple. And now Amazon, this huge industry uh, that we spend so much. How many of you are in a conversation and going, man, we need something to organize our bathroom. And the first thing you do is pull out Amazon and start looking for these possessions. And before you know it, you've ordered something you didn't actually need, you hadn't budgeted for, you put no planning into, and then it arrives at the house and you're like, Doesn't even, it's not even what I need. These rituals, the money that's invested, these temples that are built. Here's a question, uh, a couple of questions to think about. How much time, if you could stop and compute, maybe do it this week. How much time do you devote to thinking about purchasing things? Upgrading your house, upgrading your car, new storage, new organization, new barbecue equipment, new tools, new clothes, new fabrics. How much time is spent uh, planning? How much time do you spend browsing stores? Um, the other question is think about your bank account. If someone could get access to all of your financial records and knew nothing else about you, what would your finances tell them about what you value and the kind of person that you are? Would they say you're a person that cares about justice and meeting the needs of the poor and the oppressed? Or would it say that you're a person that cares about yourself and amassing objects and wealth? I want to look at three issues briefly, three elements that, that avarice is involved in, and they're these. We'll look at them one at a time. But avarice breeds ingratitude, it strangles generosity, and it ignores justice. So first of all, avarice at work in us breeds ingratitude. Historically, in the conversation about the deadly sins or the capital vices, typically pride is the one that's put at the forefront as the primary sin from which all of the others flow. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola, who we get the Jesuit movement from, um, he argued very passionately that ingratitude was actually the primary sin from which all the others came. Because before Adam and Eve could take the apple and decide in pride they were going to try and be like God, they had to reject all of the good 
things that were given round about and be ungrateful for them and pursue the one thing that they couldn't have. Avarice keeps us looking for more instead of being grateful for the things that we have. We are constantly, this is the language one writer says about this, we're constantly working to upgrade our lifestyle, um, making us ungrateful for the things that we already have. I mean, you go back to the beginning of the Bible, uh, Exodus, the Ten Commandments, number 10 of the Ten Commandments is aware of the danger of avarice. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Avarice leads us to want things that are not ours. They want us, it leads us to, to want things that we shouldn't have, to take what others have. It, it leads to lying and scheming, and hiding. How many people in the room, you don't need to show your hands, how many people in the room have bought something and tried to hide it from someone else in their life because you didn't want them knowing that you were spending the money on it? Sorry, babe. (laughs) Uh, Avarice leads to all these other issues, deception being one of them. Secondly, avarice strangles our generosity. The hoarder cannot part with what they have and so fails to be generous with what they have to the people in need. They fill their house with things. If it's true that God has given enough resources in the world for everybody, what we hoard are things that belong to someone else. I have four jackets in my closet while three homeless people have none. Avarice strangles our generosity because we try to accumulate rather than giving away. The penny pincher has little, but fights so hard to keep everything that they have. Well, I can't give that away because what will I do? I will have nothing. And when it comes to generosity, it is hardest to give away the things that we worked the hardest to get. A collection of Starbucks mugs from all of the countries that you visited is a lot harder to give away than a set of 20 mugs that were given as a wedding gift. That car that you've labored for years to have. That Xbox that you earned and you play every night. That guitar that you love, your favorite sewing machine. I'll give away the, 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 the old one, but the current one, I could never give it away. It strangles our generosity. Of course, Jesus has lots of convicting things to say. One of the stories that we know really well that's just such a convicting example of generosity in action is Mark chapter 14. While Jesus was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, this is happening right now. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. How many people here would take something that you've worked for a year to earn and just shatter it 
and pour it wastefully over the head of another person. What is that thing for you? What's the alabaster for that your life is organized around, that your time and emotions and attention goes to, that God may be saying, this thing you value more than me, perhaps you need to get rid of it or give it back to me to be free. Notice in here Judas' response, Judas's response, right? John's gospel makes it really clear that Judas is, Judas is the one kicking up the fuss. Like, she's wasting all this money. He wanted to sell it, and he's skimming some money uh, out of the offering for himself. <laughs> Spider-Man right there. <laughs> Judas' response, how many of us are like that? We look at the person next and says, oh, what a waste. See how much money they spend on books as we pile up our fabric in the corner. See how much money they waste on their car as we blow all our money going on vacation. A lot of us in this situation look a lot more like Judas than we do the woman who's walking in generosity. Finally, avarice ignores the plight of the needy. Avarice is opposed to justice. It ignores justice around us. There are certain images that I've seen that just haunt me. Here's one of them. Uh, There are lots of examples of this where you see wealth and poverty side by side. This is Mumbai, India. You've got the wealthy area with all of these high-rise flats. This is the home of Bollywood and all their movie industry. And right next to this shantytown of people living in huts and cardboard boxes with tarp roofs. If If ever there's a picture of the uneven distribution of wealth, it's right here. And I wonder how many of those houses have stuff stored up in their closets that the people in these blue roofs needed. And I wonder what would happen if the people with all their excess and all the things in storage were to take the extra that they have and walk down to this community and give what they had, what might happen. I wonder how many people live in the penthouse here with plenty room for themselves while a family of 12 is stuffed into a cardboard box a little four-by-four hut down here. I wonder what would happen if everyone with extra space invited one of those families to come and live with them. What would change? Avarice, the accumulation of wealth, blinds us to the plight of the needy around us. How many of you drive to Target to top up the things that are missing, to buy some new cushions, some new plants, and ignore the homeless person? on the way past because you're so busy focused on what you need to get that you forget that there's someone with a need that you pass on the way. Avarice breeds ingratitude, it strangles generosity and it ignores justice. I want to read a parable that Jesus teaches and I want you to have those three things in the back of your mind as you listen to this. And again, this is familiar scripture. So this is Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd says to Jesus, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is like a 2,000-year-old document, and this is still happening today, right? Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? I think that's quite humorous because God did, right? (laughs) Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. 
and the beginning of the self-storage industry happens right here. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus says to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying about whether you've got enough, or whether a house is nice enough, or whether there's enough in retirement, which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very thing, why do you worry about all the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? My mind jumps off places when I'm reading these sorts of things. Back to Genesis chapter 3. Man and woman naked in the garden, walk into sin, disobey God. And what's the first thing he does? He clothes them. From the beginning, this is what he's done. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after those things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Tough words. This, the implication of this story is this man is building this barn to store up his things while people in his neighborhood go hungry. He's storing up surplus for himself and ignoring the needs of the people around. He's so caught up. I I don't know if you noticed. He's, I'm just going to sit. I'm going to eat, drink. I'm going to be merry, which is a direct violation of all of the biblical commands to work and to contribute and to do your role, not to be lazy and sit back and do nothing. James takes it further as he's explaining to us the issue and he's looking at the the, the church that's there in Jerusalem and the issues they have with favoring the rich over the poor and the difficulties that, that are there. And um, James says to the church, religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after the orphans and the widows and their distress and keep yourself from being polluted from the world. But when I look at the church, particularly in the West, but it's true all over the world, I see a religion that's very polluted by the world that ignores the plight of the widow and the orphan, our greed, our avarice of pursuit of wealth and riches causes us to overlook the very things that break the heart of God. Did you know that the point of owning stuff is for the sake of serving other people? 
Is that, this, this is what one writer says, do you look at your paycheck that way? How much of the income that you use to upgrade your own lifestyle could and should be used to meet the needs of others? Is that how you see the things that you have? Is that how you see the money that's coming in? So what's the cure for avarice? You know, we can't, we can't fix all this stuff in our life. So spiritual disciplines are the process and the activities that we do that open us up to the way that the Spirit wants to transform us. So just fly through these quickly. Here's, here's what it takes to challenge avarice in our lives. The first one is detachment. We have to detach our affection from the material possessions we have. This is about right ordering. God doesn't say have nothing. He says, don't worship the stuff that you have. So right ordering, we just sang a song that said, I just want you, nothing else, nothing else will do. I just want you. And a new Tesla, and a new front door, and a kitchen upgrade. I just want you, nothing else matters. So everything that I'm about to say from here is building on what, how do we detach Number two, simplicity. The discipline of simplicity. Commit to living with less. Go into your closet and say, what is here that realistically I have not touched? What one person suggests with your clothes, right? Go into your wardrobe, turn all the coat hangers facing the wrong way around. And then every time you wear something, you put it back in, put the coat hanger the right way around. And at the end of the year, you'll see all of the stuff that you haven't touched. Get rid of it. Go to the storage unit, unit, get rid of the stuff. Look in your closet, what do you have more of? Give them away. And pay attention to your inner response as you do it. This is always the issue. It's not just go give something away, but what goes on inside of you as you do it? Why are you scared to give it away? What makes you see this as so precious? What makes you afraid of losing what you have? Commit to living with less gratitude. Be more grateful for what you already have. I promise you, if you look at your iPhone 13 and say every day, God, I'm so thankful for this phone. It helps me do so much. You will want the iPhone 14 less. If you start saying, God, thank you for my car. It has its issues, but thank you that it gets me from A to B. Thank you that it was a generous gift. Thank you that it's your provision. You will less want the new car that is coming. So start building the list of gratitude for what you already have. And, for, and part of gratitude is, God, this is a gift from you. If I earned this and this is mine, I get control of what it is. But if you gave this to me, then I'm merely a steward of it. And it's my responsibility to make sure this goes where you want it to be. So be more grateful for the things that we have. Number four, tithing. I've not talked a lot about this since I got here. This is not about giving money to the church. This is about reordering our attachment to money. Tithing is the biblical principle of looking at the resources you have and saying, Right at the beginning, I'm going to take a percentage of what I have and give it to the Lord because that's what's most important. It's, it's like we use stats and, and figures, right? It's 10%. But really what tithing is supposed to be is, is give till you feel it so that you realize that you have to depend on him for provision. It's very easy to give out of our abundance. It's very hard to give what we need. Again, if someone had access to all your financial records, 
could see where your money went and what percentages went where, would they see someone who values God in his ways first? Or would they see someone that looks a lot like the world? And finally, the encapsulation of all generosity. Give stuff away. Especially the stuff that you don't need. Perhaps particularly the stuff that you guard most dearly. That you cherish the most. We're a church that wants to be generous. We're a church that wants to give generously to the world around about us. Why? Because Jesus gave generously to us. He gave his life for us. And all he asks is that we give our life back to him in love and then in generosity to the people around us. So avarice, where is it evidenced in your life? What is God asking you to do? To move away from avarice and toward the generosity and the liberality that he demonstrates to us. So I want you to uh, turn to people sitting around you. What is one thing that God is challenging you in because of the message? Take a little bit of time to pray together and then we will worship to wrap up.